Let us open with prayer. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise, the glory of our God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning for the teaching of Dr. Lloyd. Today concludes our time with Dr. Lloyd. We would ask your blessing upon him and upon all of us as we take the knowledge that we have gained over these weeks and apply them in our lives. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By now you figured out that when we pray, when I pray, we start with an old hymn. And this is four weeks. I'm not sure I can even remember the four that I used. Today's hymn was written by John Wesley in the early 1700s, who founded the Methodist Church. He wrote the, the words to this hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, he wrote on the first year's anniversary of his conversion to Christianity. He wrote 19 stanzas to this hymn. We only sing four. You could look it up in the hymn book. There are only the first four stanzas that we sing. Here was stanza 17. And we don't sing this stanza. Harlots and publicans and thieves in holy triumph join. Saved is the sinner that believes from crimes as great as mine. So there was John Wesley, the moralist of his day. Might make a good tea partier today. Who knows? Dr. Lloyd, you're on. It's all on the test. I know. I hate that question. I hate the question, how long should this essay be? I always say as long as it needs to be. Okay. Today, I've got more slides to go over than usual. So some things I'm going to just say, there it is for your reference. And you can look at your handy paper reference. In fact, this isn't even in the slides. I sent this to Jim l this morning. He might not have gotten that. But, uh, but Jim has it for anybody that wants it. Okay, so this is uh, some dates. And I wanted to look at, in particular, just to, now, um, uh, 80-30 would be about the time Jesus and Nazareth believed to have been crucified in Jerusalem. I know that doesn't add up mathematically, but he was born uh, this says at 8 B.C. We know that it's miscalculated that, that uh, he was born earlier than one is, you know, the zero one change that we would think. But anyway, so these are the estimated dates, and that's what it says believed to have been. Um, but I wanted to get a little, and then we all know that Paul comes along and becomes the writer of a, of a sizable chunk of the New Testament. Um, and he's converted at this point around 34 to 35. And what I wanted to look at though is all of this church history happens and some other things uh, in terms of Roman history are listed here. Um, James, the brother of John is executed. Stephen's the first martyr, the first council of Jerusalem, 48, 49. 
All of this happens before um, the, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. But what I wanted to look at is the creation of the New Testament. A lot of people don't really know exactly what order it came in. This is our best theories as to when things were written. It's a little different than what I learned in school, and I'm sure there's other interpretations, but this will give you some idea. So the first uh, book of the New Testament would have been Thessalonians. We tend to read it from the beginning of the Gospels, but this was written in, in 49. The Gospels hadn't been written yet. And Paul wrote Galatians in 51 or so, and 55 he wrote Corinthians. So those would have been the first books of the Bible. Um, you can see as it comes along here, that actually the first book of the Bible has not yet happened. Now here in 70, this is when uh, Jerusalem is destroyed. And around 70, Mark is written down. So the theory is that at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, when the, it, this is after the Christian sect has been thrown out of um, the synagogues and out of the temple, uh, and Christianity has separated itself from Judaism, that they began to see the first generation of the disciples, the apostles, beginning to die off, and so Mark takes it on himself to write the first gospel. And he's using some uh, oral and written traditions himself, putting them together for his purposes. If you read Mark, it's very, very, uh, very, very terse. It's like, then Jesus went here. He said this. After he said that, he went here. <laughs> Not a lot of elaboration, it's very simple. And both Luke and Matthew draw on Mark. They quote sections of Mark and use it for a source. Luke is written down about 85 or so, and the book of Acts is written by the same author. Both of them attributed to a physician named Luke. We don't know for sure, but that theory makes a lot of sense. We know that it was a Greek who wrote it. Revelation, now that's a mistypo, it's Revelation. You can see here's when some of um, the Old Testament is still being canonized. In the Gospel of Matthew, about 80 to 100. And then John is supposed to have written about 100 to 125. Now, of course, that causes problems in terms of this being John of the Gospels because that would make him incredibly old. Now, some of the theories are that he did live to be that incredibly old. <coughs> and other theories go different directions, that it's a different John or a John writing in the tradition of John. But that's just to give you some idea what the theories are of how the basic Bible was, New Testament was put together. Now I want to look at the New Testament as a, um, as a literary work today. Okay, from a literary standpoint, so not a theological or other standpoint, the New Testament text reflects the history and culture of the time period. In other words, literary theorists always believe that if something is written, it, it, it could not be written five years earlier, five years later by anyone else. It can only be written by that person living in that culture at that time. And so you can always tell something about the culture and the time from the writing. I'm just going to look at three forces that shape the New Testament documents. And there are many forces that shape them. But I thought these would probably be a little less known. Uh, one, the first force would be the practice and beliefs associated with the Qumran sect, um, the ones who put the Dead Sea Scrolls where they were, where they were later found. Second would be the development of rabbinic and Pharisaic Judaism. Over time, 
the solution to the, Ju the, the Jewish diaspora was to develop the idea of the teacher, the rabbi. Rabbi means teacher, rabbi. And so um, there developed a teacher culture, and these teachers were usually Pharisees. <coughs> and Pharisaic Judaism came about. We'll explore that a little bit, but last week I went over a lot about what Pharisaic Judaism, Judaism was about. All right. And the third force is religious practices of the surrounding Greek cultures. Okay. So the scrolls found near the Dead Sea, as well as the oral written traditions of the Pharisees, confirm two things. Um, I don't know why I can't make this go away. That the dominant perspective on the Hebrew Bible is that it could be, should be significantly reinterpreted to address the, the modern circumstances. The Essenes believe this, and the Pharisees believe this. The Sadducees did not believe this, but the Sadducees disappear at the fall of the temple. They're the keepers of the temple. It makes sense. They're the rich and the elite of Jewish culture, so they're scattered, dispersed, if not killed. So the Pharisees basically win, and because they win, then the attitude towards the Old Testament and the New Testament period is that it can be what? Reinterpreted. If this were not true, when Jesus said some of the things that he said, he probably would have been stoned outright because he purposely says, but I say to you. And so he's speaking within that rabbinic tradition that a rabbi has the right to say, the law says this, but I say to you. He has that right to say that because he is a rabbi. And they do call him rabbi. Uh, just for reference, I'm going to flash through this, but you can see where Qumran is. It's up here near the Dead Sea. It's in a very rocky area. And there was, a, there was a settlement established there, amazingly enough, in 134 to 104 B.C. during the Hellenistic period. And if you remember from last time, as a reaction against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both not keeping pure Judaism. <coughs> and this is what the area looks like. Not exactly, I would call, hospitable. <coughs> now, what's important about them is that we have a snapshot other than the scriptures that we have handed down of earlier copies of the scriptures and we have other documents that the sect wrote. And what we learn is that Judaism, like I said last time, is divided into political sects, religious sects and political parties. But the thing I want to emphasize here is that the Essenes and the Pharisees both believed in interpreting scriptures to fit the times. Now, as you know, there's a lot of evidence in the New Testament that of the sectarian groups. So the ones that we see in the New Testament, um, and one that we forget about, is that there was rivalry between John the Baptist, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. John the Baptist actually um, comes at Judaism through, I think, sort of a Pharisaic, uh, Pharisaic lens and that, uh, an interpretation of the scriptures. But he brings in baptism, which would be an Essene practice. So there's some conflicts between the Pharisees, Sadducees, and John the Baptist. There's also conflicts between John the Baptist and the followers of Jesus. There's some arguments over who is the better. There's arguments between the Samaritans and the Jews. We learned about that tradition last week. Between the Pharisees, Jesus, and the Herodians. Remember, the Herodians are the people who favor Herod. Herod is king, and Herod and his successors, who were all called Herod, confusingly enough. Um, then we also see in some places where Christians and Pharisees oppose each other in Matthew 23, but in Acts 
23, we see Christians and Pharisees band together. And one of the reasons that would make sense is because, of course, Christianity is another interpretation of the scriptures. So they, differences between them and the Pharisees are not going to be that great. But we'll see what they differ on and why that leads to problems. But, of course, both of them believe in resurrection. So they're going to side against the Sadducees. And then there's differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right. So the temple is destroyed in 70, and that ended the sectarian divisions. Nothing will end sectarian divisions like getting rid of the whole culture, just obliterating the city. (laughs) That would do it. (laughs) So only the Judaism of the Pharisees, the rabbinic Judaism, uh, Judaism based in the synagogue survives. And when we read the Qumran literature, um, we see this transition. The Judaism of the rabbis, as expounded in the Mishnah, uh, begins to take over. And we'll see in a second what the Mishnah is. There we go. In the Mishnah, there's six orders. These are oral traditions that began at oral traditions, and they were later codified. The reason that we know that they stayed intact is because they were oral traditions, and this happens in Hindu culture, it happens in many cultures around the world, that specific people, specific teachers would teach exactly what they knew to a disciple. And every day that disciple would have to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, to make sure nothing, not one word was changed. So when we say oral tradition, that doesn't mean, you know, like Joe was just talking to Frank. It was, they were taught purposely. Younger people were always taught the tradition. And Hinduism, because they did this, Sanskrit is a language that traces back exactly for thousands of years. It's handy for linguists because we can learn what that language was like that long ago. All other languages changed. Sanskrit didn't because they kept it purposely. And so a similar tradition is going on here, that the oral tradition stays oral, and it's finally codified in this same time period. Uh, But what's important for us reading it from a New Testament perspective is look at the categories. There are things to do with blessings, tithes, and agricultural laws, with festivals. And look, there's one with women. And notice that this very question comes up to Jesus, doesn't it? Marriage and divorce. So what they're doing is testing him and seeing where he stands as a rabbi on these things. Uh, So you can see some on criminal law, some uh, sacrificial rights, the temple and dietary laws. These are the very questions that people ask Jesus about. And so what they're doing is trying to figure out where are you on all of these traditions, purities, laws of food purity and bodily purity. And Jesus addresses those things. Okay, just for some side notes, the Mishnah means repetition. So there you see what I mean. The word itself means I give it to you, you repeat it. Um, but it later comes to mean to study and review, which makes sense. And it was put together in 220 CE by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And you can see in Pharisaic, uh, what they were worried about is that the Pharisaic tradition would be lost. So he finally codifies it into a written tradition in, in the CE. But it's being codified all along in various forms. It's a part of the larger oral tradition and uh, spoken debate tradition called the Talmud. And it's a record of rabbinic discussions, the Jewish law, ethics, philosophy, customs, and history. So the Talmud has two parts, the Mishnah, which we just talked about, and the Gemara. And now this is put together uh, 
further on into the Common Era, so 500 AD, a discussion of the Mishnah and related writings. So, are we getting the picture? Pharisaic tradition means there's a constant reinterpretation. And in fact, most often, that it will be rabbis that are quoted rather than the scriptures themselves, or rabbi so-and-so said. So certain rabbis emerge as the dominant speakers for certain positions. Okay, back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Kind of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. What, the, what we've learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they're not just scriptures, it's not just pieces of Old Testament and things like that, which are really valuable in terms of figuring out um, whether the Old Testament we have is accurate. And for the most part, because of this idea of the repetition, the Old Testament has not changed that much. It has been reinterpreted a bit, but basically very similar. Now, here's what I wanted to get to, that the scholars pointed out similarities between the beliefs and practices outlined in the Qumran literature and those of the early Christians. So they have comparable rituals of baptism. So baptism is nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the Hebrew Bible. So you have to ask, why was Jesus baptized? And it's already become a huge tradition by the time he's baptized, right? It's seen as he has to do this as a part of his ministry. So why did that come about? Well, it's partially because of the Essene movement that they believed to dedicate yourself to God, you should be ritually cleansed, and they used water <coughs> to do that. They did it daily. They also celebrated communal meals and shared property. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, this is exactly how the early church sets up itself. It's based on baptism, communal meals, including the Lord's Supper, and shared property. Um, Paul talks about it in his early letters and how it's already gone wrong. <laughs> the rich people bring their own food. <laughs> I'm looking down. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so the poor people are eating, uh, you know, poor people food, and the rich people are eating rich people food, and Paul says, share the food, right? We see in the early church that everyone came together and just gave all their money to the church, all their money, not a tithe, and everyone shared their fates together. Now, of course, Every now and then, someone else will come up with an idea to do that, but usually it goes awry, doesn't it? Over history, communal efforts at Christianity have faced some tough times. And you can see that in the New Testament. It pretty much fails even there. The other one is that they have parallel organizational structures. The, the Essenes draw, uh, divided themselves into 12 tribes. Now, I'm not clear whether they actually thought that they were members of these tribes historically or whether they just kind of said, okay, you're in this tribe. Uh, but they divided themselves into 12 tribes and they had 12 leaders, similar to the Christian church set up with the 12 apostles and 12 disciples. So Jesus picking the 12 has this tradition of the Essenes uh, of picking 12 as the representatives of the 12 tribes. It seems natural when he picks his 12 disciples that he does that but the Essene tradition kind of gives a background and history as to why that would occur. No one had structured their sect that way before. All right, now, does that mean that Jesus was an Essene? Of course, that's a fun question. Did he ever go there? Did he ever study? Did he ever go to Qumran? It's fascinating, we don't know. But we do know that this belief was so common that the New Testament never really raises the question or explains why it is he needs to be baptized or whatever. So 
The Essenes, though they lived out in the wilderness, their ideas filtered into Judaism. And baptism becomes a part of the tradition and the culture. Okay, so, so far, so good. We're seeing that there are two major influences on what's going to happen in the New Testament. One is the rabbinic tradition of questioning and the Qumran, the Essene tradition, but the Essene traditions of communal meals, structure, baptism, what was the other point? Property. Shared property. All those are going to influence the early church. What I want to look at specifically is zero in on the attitudes toward the scriptures and how it's reflected in Jesus' comments. Now, like I said last time, there is this kind of uh, paradox that in rabbinic tradition, there is a tradition that, you, that the scriptures are sacred, that the first five books are written by Moses, and they're unquestioned. At the same time, it's okay to question them. <laughs> Am I making any sense? <laughs> That's a paradox. No one seems to really question this paradox so I, I guess it really just means that if you really said something kind of off the wall, that they would say, you can't say that. But if you said something that made it make more sense, does that make sense? So you can't challenge it in such a way as to throw it out. But if you reinterpret it as a way to make it make more sense, it seems to be what goes on. And we can see this exactly reflected in Jesus. For truly I say to you, unless until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches other accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then in other sections, he does that. He calls into question and changes some things. So we have to see that there is this paradox, but at the same time, this salute to the authority of the scriptures that cannot be changed, but at the same time, we can question them, and we can even say that was for a different time. So what he's saying is not that radical in terms of rabbinic tradition. I think a lot of times we think that he just offended everyone, but he didn't. He spoke within a Pharisaic tradition, and therefore, when Pharisees questioned him, it was only about things that they themselves were debating. So they just wanted to see, you're a new rabbi on the scene. What do you think on these things? And of course, at some point, he says things that they disagree with. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with a question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Now, remember from the Mishnah, this is a whole tradition. Jesus answered them with a question, which he loved to do. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? This is a good teaching method. I, my, I aggravate my students because they'll say, well, what about this? And I'll say, what do you think? <laughs> and they're like, ah, <laughs> I just want you to answer me. <laughs> so they're trying to trap him. And in essence, I read this rhetorically because I'm a rhetorician. He's trapping them. Yes, well, what do you say? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said if a man can give away a wife, written notice of divorce and send her away. yes. In, we have two instances where this comes up and two different tellings of this. In Mark, he gives this answer. He wrote this commandment all as a concession to your hard hearts. This is just crazy radical in a lot of ways in the sense that he is saying there are some aspects of the Old Testament, some laws of the Old Testament that don't apply. Isn't he saying that? 
He's saying, this came from Moses. This didn't come from God. This came from Moses. And Moses gave you this as a concession. Now, they didn't stone him. <laughs> so we know that that was all right. That they probably saw a difference between laws that made sense in that time that don't apply anymore and laws that apply forever. And it's interesting, divorce would be one of those ones. And Jesus actually takes a more conservative attitude toward his divorce. All right, even at some points he adds to the law. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, and this is a common uh, mechanism of rabbis of the time, but I say that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, uh, brother or sister ha, which is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So he takes it up another level. He adds to the law. He even annuls the law. This is Matthew 5, and this is the other version that contrasts with Mark's. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife may give her a certificate of divorce. Now he's speaking to a different audience here. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's, he's annulled the divorce law. This is powerful stuff. But again, not that unusual for Rebbe to say that. All right. Now, Paul does the same, follows a similar pattern. Paul is a Pharisee. And so when you see him dealing with the scriptures, he uses similar moves. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If you look at Deuteronomy, where he's quoting, cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words in this law by carrying them out. Then he says, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Now he kind of skips over the passage after this and then jumps across to a different part of the scriptures. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. He instead goes over to Leviticus and he says, you shall therefore keep in my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Okay, in this case, he's kind of shifting an interpretation from the law to the faith, but he's using passages about the law to do it. Am I making any sense? So he's re kind of radically reinterpreting what they originally meant. Here it is saying, you obey the law and you'll be blessed. And here he's saying, he focuses on the curse. Cursed is, are those who do not do what's written in the law, and if you do, then you shall live by them. Puts those two together and makes a similar move here where he completely changes what the original meant. But the righteous say that by, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is, who will bring Christ down? Or who will descend to the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you look at the original, he's going almost word for word, but he's radically reinterpreting what the words mean. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. This is God speaking to the Israelites. 
It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven and get it, proclaim it to us so we may obey it, nor is it beyond the sea and it, the deep there so that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart, so that you may obey it. So the emphasis in the Old Testament is on obedience leading to righteousness. And he's reading this as a command of faith leading to righteousness. Does that make sense? So he's radically reinterpreting it. And this is where Paul himself gets in trouble with a lot of Jews because they disagree with this interpretation. They don't understand why he's taking it and making it mean something so radically different. He's reading it too, uh, from what we talked about, as an allegory of Christ. Again, most Jews would have had a lot of trouble seeing what, what that meant, and he's adding too much. He's going too far in terms of what the Jewish belief would do. Okay, so to back up, Paul is using a very rabbinic style. Yes, he's reinterpreting the scriptures, and that was all right with the Pharisees. They did that themselves. But, of course, what causes the problem is the way he radically reinterprets it. So we have to ask ourselves, in some ways, in fact, he goes further. And this is why the Jews and the Christians split. We are in a new service, that of the Spirit, and not in the old service of a written code. Now, let me back up, too. Remember the early church period, one of the first issues was about, just a sec, uh, one of the first issues was over ritual, yes, circumcision and Jewish rituals. So you can see already that Mishnah problems were coming up, but they weren't insurmountable. The Jewish, and the Jewish um, people and the Christian sect could have coincided or, or cohabited for a while if they'd solved those problems. So those came up first. These are the ones that divided them. Yes. Uh, to say it's not worth anything anymore. It was, it only had a purpose at a certain time. And remember that is a pattern of the Pharisees to say that some laws were only applicable at a certain time. But now Paul is going to say all of them. Yeah. <laughs> From your face, you got a sense of that. How popular is that going to make him with other rabbis? We are in a new service, that of the Spirit, not in the old service of a written cult. Now, notice from the dates, it took Paul a while to get to Galatians. He has to think this through. And there has to be splits and divides with the Jewish population. He says the law is a kind of tutor in charge of us until Christ should come. So once you have the real teacher, why do you need the tutor? This reflects a completely new sense of the purpose and applicability of the Torah. And it was rejected by most Jews and embraced by the Gentiles. So, now we're to the third section of this concern. Why the Gentiles? Why were they so open to this? All right, as you know, in the New Testament, they're usually called the Greeks. Now, uh, when I was studying, my professor told me to read a book by A.D. Nock. And it changed my life. And it very much surprised me because it was, it was a course in Christian history. And he told me to read A.D. Nock, and he said, he's an atheist. I'm like, that's uh, not what I expected. <laughs> and he said, because he's an atheist, I like what he says. Because he's just looking at it 
looking at the history, he's just looking at it as a historical development. So his perspective isn't swayed or he's not trying to prove a point, he's just looking at it. And one of the things that A.D. Knox said that kind of shocked me is he said that Jesus didn't found Christianity, he said Paul did. That Jesus, what he founded was uh, a sect within Judaism that pretty much failed within Judaism or we would not have Judaism, would we? We'd, uh, there would just be Christians. So it didn't, it didn't really take. That's not to say that many Jews did not convert and still do, but it is to say that when Paul took the gospel to the Greeks, that's when Christianity became Christianity. And that became the Christianity that eventually ruled the Roman Empire. So in that sense, he's right. If you look at Christianity, not um, the church, then Paul is kind of almost the founder of Christianity as a movement. All right, one of the reasons this worked is because Paul lived in the time of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and he could travel freely. He was a Roman citizen, as you know. Um, born, so he was born in a Greek city as a Roman citizen, <laughs> studied as a rabbi, trained in Pharisaism. He's pretty much the whole package in terms of the culture of the time. He understands Greek culture, he understands Roman culture, and he understands Jewish culture. Yeah. Yeah. Are doing away with the law? Um, they weren't actually, was he actually doing away with the law, or was he trying to get at what Jesus had said that he had come to fulfill the law? Okay. Which was reinterpreted more like, quote unquote, to the spirit of the law, get the idea behind it. Was Paul trying to do that, or is he really trying to say, forget that? I'm trying to tell you something new. Okay, both of those. Okay. In the sense that when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, he means, okay, like when some, uh, your prescription has been filled. Am I making any sense? Then there's no sense for the prescription anymore because it's been filled. So when he speaks of it that way, to fulfill the law, means that no longer does it hold the same importance. Does that make any sense? It's not unimportant, but it becomes historically a footstep to the better place. Does that make sense? So it's not that it's not important, but Paul is dealing with the question, should a, should a Gentile become a Jew to become a Christian? And he's saying no. That those laws were to get the Jewish people to see certain things that would open them to the Messiah, and the Gentile can just sidestep that. They can just go straight to the source, yeah. I just realized that your discussion of Paul here reminds me of what you said two weeks ago, I believe it was about Hindu culture where they put more emphasis on the message and not as much on the text. Yes. So would it be fair to say that Paul is trying to kind of do the same thing with Christianity at this point and say, let's think more about the message of the law and the tradition and where it's going and not the actual yeah. literary text. And he's reading it in a lot of ways. Remember the, one of the Greek influences of reading the Old Testament was to read it allegorically? He's doing exactly that. He's reading it all as an allegory of Christ. So he's using a very Greek interpretation. And you can see why this is going to alienate. Most Pharisees are not Hellenists. They do not like Greek culture. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to be part of them. They separate themselves from it. And to see him, this kind of Hellenized Pharisee, interpreting using Greek methods, you can see why he was not popular. 
he was not popular among a lot of different groups of people, but <laughs> he didn't really care. <laughs> when you read about it, he's like, I don't care if I'm popular. And again, he says that. He says, it's the message, right? Don't shoot the messenger. If the message is true, you can go with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I suspect from here on we're going to move to Christianity and, and leave the Jews behind. But I want to know, after listening to all these laws and, and the traditions and so forth, why did some people, uh, and they knew their history and so forth, the, the Jewish, Jews did, why did some people follow Christ and others, no, he's a heretic? Hold on to your later, Hosen. <laughs> Sorry, that was a quote from a movie that I used to quote around my kids because they, they saw the movie, but it doesn't make any sense in this context. Hold on to your hats, whatever. This'll, this is Knox's explanation, and it's not just his explanation. All right, there. I almost answered it right with that new PowerPoint. Paul translated the gospel for the Greeks, and he emphasized elements of the gospel they could understand. Now, he wasn't the only one to do that. Luke and John both translated the gospel towards a Greek point of view. So, why did they do that? Because they saw the way it was going. It makes sense that the church is just not taking among Jews because this, this allegorical interpretation that has to do with Jesus as the Son of God is unacceptable to them. It is not in the scriptures and they can't interpret them in any way that expresses that. To them, the Messiah is a human person who is declared king and saves Israel and reestablishes the temple. He is not a person who dies on a cross from a Roman punishment. This is absurd to them. So even though so many elements of Christianity had been established within Jewish tradition, that element was too far. And so the, most Jews did not part of it historically is remember Jesus says when you see eagles gather outside of the city leave he prophesies about an end times and he tells them when eagles gather around the city code word when the Romans arrive to destroy Jerusalem which he was saying is going to happen leave and so Christians left when Jerusalem was sacked not many Christians died they moved out and they moved to Antioch where you see an axe um, that becomes the new head of the church. And Antioch, of course, is a Greek city. Okay. Now, here's the other part. I haven't filled in all the pieces of the puzzle. <laughs> we have baptism, communal, okay, all of that stuff. Where did the idea of resurrection come from? Like I said last time, it came under Hellenistic influence, this idea of uh, believing in a different kind of life after death or the ability to die and to be resurrected. But it became one of the fundamental beliefs of, guess what? Do you see it? Rabbinic Judaism. The intellectual successors of the Pharisees. This, the Sadducees were an exception. The resurrection, by, but Maimonides, a famous Jewish teacher, and remember, uh, he is probably one of the most quoted Jewish teachers, um, but like I said, after a while, you just start quoting the rabbis. Uh, he, says it's, he says it's part of the 13 Articles of Belief, and it also becomes a part of the prayer of um, the Jewish people, the Shemani Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Remember that it was a belief in Sheol. But by the time of the New Testament, 
they had developed an idea that associated the resurrection with the messianic age. So then when the Messiah would return, then, then people would be brought back to life and there would be this perfect kingdom. The Hebrew word is olam haba, the world to come. It's used both for the messianic age and the afterlife. And the Mishnah, remember the teaching, says this world is like a lobby before the olam haba. Prepare yourself in the lobby so you may enter the banquet hall. Notice, too, already an image that Jesus uses later on, what? the banquet. I think a lot of times, if you study rabbinic history, then you know that Jesus definitely was a rabbinic Jew. He spoke within that tradition, within that culture. I, I don't know why it's shocking to people sometimes to think that he, he's well-trained, and people recognize that from the very beginning. Remember when he's 12 years old? Like where is he getting these things? Because he's already doing what rabbis do, which is to look at the scriptures, interpret them in a way that makes sense to people. He's a good teacher, and he's impressive, and he's interpreting it in ways that make sense to people. So he gathers followers. All right, now, like I said before, Mark and Matthew relate Jesus to the Jewish concept of the Messiah, so their focuses uh, involve Jewish issues, the law, the covenant, etc. But when you read Luke and John, it slants more to a Gentile audience. Even to the point where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew and Mark, and then he says, blessed are the poor in Luke. Just leaves that spirit off because it makes more sense in terms of what Luke was trying to do. And then John, I talked earlier about he uses the logos, the idea of the word of God, which is a Greek idea, and he takes that and he uses that to explain the gospel. All right, so here's the other influence. I don't know, I, I didn't know this. Pagan is from Pagani. It's a Latin word, meaning an outsider or a foreigner. So in the Roman world, you were a Roman or you were a pagan. You were a Pagani. So it's interesting that the Christians call the Romans pagans. The word gets reversed. Interestingly enough, Christianity, Christian at first was an insult that uh, people called them little Christ as, as a derogatory term, and Christians took it on themselves. Christianity means little Christ. In the ancient world, most Gentiles would have been familiar with the ideas of death and resurrection. There were even blood baptisms and rebirths and cultic rituals for the Greek gods Sybil and Attis that involved rebirth through the bathing of the blood of bulls. Pretty gory stuff. Ceremonies surrounding the eating of food offered to idols, which becomes a huge issue for Paul. It's well established all in the places where he goes, Thessalonica and Corinth. The reason he's struggling with it is because the people had already had that. They already had this food offered to idols mentality. It was similar to the Lord's Supper, so they didn't really see why they couldn't do both or whatever, and he, he argues about that. The other connection is that the ancients had similar ideas of a sacrificial and dying God. Traditional Jews would scoff at the idea of God becoming a man. God is God. No human could ever be. But Greek Christians were more open to the ideas because they had precedent. They already had beliefs that were like this. Here's a sample. Osiris is a central figure of, and you've probably heard of Osiris, figure of Egyptian religion. They believed in his divinity, death, and resurrection, and absolute control of the bodies of souls of men. 
And the point of Osarian religion was a hope of resurrection, and that's why people were, plant, you know, were buried with all the things that they would need for that afterlife. But in all of those burial reliefs, you'll see a picture of Osiris standing there in judgment. There were also mystery cults all around the Mediterranean basin. Philosophers of the ancient world were the spiritual masters of the inner mysteries. They were inner mysteries cults. Christianity is going to have to deal with this later because there's going to become some inner mystery cults of Christianity and they're going to have to debate and struggle. Is Christianity a mystery cult? What's going on? Okay, so in Egypt, it was Osiris. In Greece, Dionysus. Asia, Addis. In Syria, Adonis. Italy, Bacchus. Persia, Mithras. So uh, all of these cultures already had the idea of a god-man who would take on some sort of punishment and then resurrect and become the hope of resurrection for the people who believed in them. All right, this was first discovered or first written about at any length by a guy named um, Fraser in a book called Golden Bough. You all heard of the Golden Bough? The librarian speaks, of course. Prior to the birth of Christianity, <laughs> the ancient world was full of mythology, rituals, and ceremonies and religious beliefs that conformed on many levels to what later became fundamental doctrines of Christianity. It's common understanding in the secular intellectual world since 1890, that was the year James Fraser put out the Golden Bough. So this was his thesis. Fraser became the first mainstream scholar to highlight the common themes found throughout the myths and legends of many different cultures. Themes that predated Christianity were very similar. Most important of these, he thought, was the story of the dying and rising God. Now, at the time, this was used to discredit the church, as you might imagine, that, this, that Christianity is just one more of these dying and rising gods. And so I wanted to look and see how G.K. Chesterton, uh, at one point I read everything the man wrote. I, he's a pretty interesting guy. Um, the Everlasting Man is the name of the book, though. And C.S. Lewis both responded to this point of view because it was popular during their time and caused a lot of people to question. Um, here's their response. I'm going to give it to you, and, and it's also been questioned, but it's kind of a fun hypothesis. Chesterton and Lewis countered the pagan Christ hypothesis by saying that pagans derived them from an ancient revelation of God. So they pointed out some righteous Gentiles are in the Old Testament. And they named particularly, uh, now Noah would be a Gentile in the sense because Jews haven't, you know what I'm saying, the law hasn't been given, whatever. Uh, Job, Jethro, Enoch, and Melchizedek are all figures in the Old Testament itself. And they would have included some other people. So here was their theory. They said the one true God, the creator of all peoples, revealed himself to any sincere seeker with a heart open to him, even if that person dwelt in a heathen land. And C.S. Lewis holds on to this. He's, he believes, um, his belief was to know the name of Jesus is to know what Jesus means, kind of the meaning rather than the word. And then if someone finds that in another culture, they're still saved. It's still radically a radical belief to some people, but it makes sense to Lewis, and I know a lot of us have some respect for what Lewis said. And basically, he's answering the response that what about all the people that live in other places that never get to hear the gospel? And he says, you know, God is huge, and perhaps God is reaching that person in that other culture. And maybe they don't know the name, but they, they, they're getting the message. Similar idea here. So what he's 
what they're saying is a very interesting idea, that God is moving among the other nations, planting the idea of the dying and resurrected Savior. Yes? So that when the real God comes, they'll, all, they'll be open to it. Perhaps the Lord even revealed something of his plan of future redemption to the righteous Gentiles so that they, like his chosen people, could have faith in the coming Messiah. There's some similar language to that in Paul about Gentiles and righteous Gentiles. He doesn't say that, but he does have a similar idea. The other part of this is this, that basically they got the message about the dying and rising God, but they interpreted it within their own culture and kind of messed it up into these other dying God legends. And then their theory is that when Christ finally came, it was though the dying God myths of paganism suddenly became reality. So that is Lewis's very belief. He says the myth becomes reality, that all these times the myth was preparing us for the real thing. So when the real thing came, they would be open to it. So A.D. Knox's interpretation would be because of these previous beliefs, Gentiles, the Greeks, were open to the Christian gospel because it made sense within their own framework. Whereas the Jewish framework did not allow for the kinds of thinking that was happening. And so the Jews and the Christians separated. All right. So I'm actually ahead of time. I had more slides than ever and made it ahead of time. I hope I didn't rush it too much. But let me just summarize what I'm trying to say so you don't wonder what the heck was he trying to say. All right. So things that I wanted to bring today. And of course, we didn't really quite get <laughs> to Christianity because I was more interested in Christianity, how it went from being a Jewish sect and, and existing within Jewish culture and why it exploded onto the scene past that. But sometime, perhaps we can talk again about some other details past that point. All right, so the New Testament concept is baptism, communal living, shared property, and leadership structure have precedent in the intertestamental Jewish culture of the Essenes at Qumran. The Pharisaic rabbinical beliefs and the interpretability of scriptures are reflected in the words of Jesus and Paul, who both follow the rabbinic tradition. I, I remember my professor specifically saying, you know, the more you understand a rabbinic tradition, the more you understand the intertestamental period, the more you understand that Jesus was truly a Jewish rabbi. That though he's bringing the Christian method, message and a, a different interpretation of the Old Testament, he still speaks within that tradition. He's very much a part of that tradition. And they recognize that. Um, it's not so much that they don't recognize him as a teacher, it's that they don't like some of his ideas. They find him dangerous, particularly some of his ideas about the resurrection. All right, but the Greek ideas of resurrection filtered into Judaism in the intertestamental period and rabbinical tradition embraced the, gospel, the concept. In other words, if what Lewis and Chesterton are saying is true, then the same thing is happening culturally the other way, that the time is being prepared for Jesus to come by taking Jewish belief that did not hold into resurrection so that they did have a belief in resurrection. Does that make sense? It's like everything is coming to a certain point. This is why Paul is going to sit, use the word kairos for the time that Jesus came. This is very interesting, and I'm glad we've got a few minutes left. The Greeks had three, four concepts of time, one of which we have. They believed in chronos, 
you know, moment by moment, chronology. But they also had three other words for time, and this is fascinating to me, because we only have one, we tend to think of time only one way. And so we came up with stuff like time is money, which Greeks would have found horrible. <laughs> they still would, wouldn't they? <laughs> they, they want a four-day work week, you know. <laughs> Gotta like the Greek people. <laughs> They're still fighting over these things, aren't they? But anyway, maybe it's because they have these other views of time. One is called prepon, which means that time is not moving the way I want it to, so I just go with it, go with the flow, right? Prepon. Then they use the word dynamis, which from which we get dynamite. It means power. It means time is not going my way, but I'm going to move it my way. We've all had that experience, right? particularly when you're working with organizations. Sometimes it's better to just go with the organization, and sometimes you gotta fight and pull them where you want them to go. As a teacher, this is fantastic to think of these two different ways of using time. Here's the third one, though, the fourth one. Kairos. Kairos means the perfect time, and very seldom does that happen in life, does it? Hopefully it happened in important moments of your life, where the right thing was said to the right person at the right time for the right reason <laughs> they were receptive. Everything was together. Time was perfect. The word kairos means literally time is pregnant. And I'm like, wow, that's a fantastic idea. So which word does Paul use for when Jesus came? Kairos, when time was pregnant. It happened. So all of these things are falling together. And that's one way to put it all together. I know that bringing this idea that uh, all these things kind of occurred at certain moments of history can be a little confusing in terms of you, know, you can see how the Bible is written, how it's put together. It kind of takes some of the magic out of it. But at the same time, you could kind of see that it's all in a preparation. So, last point. Cultures all over the Mediterranean basin had pre-existing myths of dying and resurrected saviors, even ideas of blood baptism that made them open, more open than Jews to the gospel. So, historically, that's what happened. And all of this perhaps explains a little bit the answer to your question. Um, one of the things about Christianity that's always bugged me is, you know, God is really aiming at such a small percentage, small percentage of the people on earth. And this makes me feel better because I, I just have a hard time God throwing two-thirds of the world away. And so when um, this, that, they, that he's preparing us for what, the second coming? Preparing all those other cultures so that the second time Christ come, they'll, they'll believe? They'll that, that would be Lewis's and Chesterton's belief, yes. I like that. That God is speaking to other cultures in other ways. In the uh, history of religions, and especially of sacred texts, there's usually at some point in time a group that wants to go to inerrancy to establish a degree of certitude. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't hear that in the intertestamental period. Is that correct? Sadducees. The Sadducees went to uh, the Bible's inerrant. We can't talk about it, comment on it, but they lost. Uh, so yes, there's always a group that does that. And then in rabbinic Judaism, of course, it's gonna split into more liberal and more conservatives. You're absolutely right, though. It seems like there's always one group who 
shifts it towards a very conservative view and another group who moves towards interpretation. That's just kind of the way humans are, I guess. I look at it as the one seems more of a fear response to me. It's like when I begin teaching the Bible's literature, I tell them, you know, this book has stood the test of time. So things we're saying here are not going to make or break the book. And, and to me, the degree to which someone reacts from, you know, reacts against these ideas is the degree to which they're afraid that they're wrong. So to me, if you're sure that you know what you know, you have nothing to fear. If that makes any sense. Doctor, uh, you... Uh, Voice? Oh, wow, I thought I was okay. being called there for a second. <laughs> Build me an ark. We're maybe, we don't have enough time, but you mentioned about the baptism not being mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, could you spend a couple minutes just in, in the role of washed in blood and the blood sacrifices? Now, the blood uh, sacrifices all through the Old Testament. And... Yes. Uh, was there anything connection with that in terms of following up with the baptism with the water and then baptism with the spirit or okay. was there no connection whatsoever between all the references to blood in the old testament the sacrifices and being washed in blood those type of references as far as i know they hadn't put those two together like the church does the blood and water um the Essene tradition was water only uh, and I don't think, I, I'll have to look into it, but I don't think uh, blood sacrifice was really a, a huge part of their tradition. But of course it was part of the tr temple tradition. And the idea of being washed in the blood comes from uh, the sprinkling of the high priest. He would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animals on the people. So that idea is already there from earlier times. But yeah, the whole water baptism thing seems to have emerged in the intertestamental. Does that make sense? almost absolutely sure <laughs> that the Essenes didn't really combine <coughs> the two. And I don't know if the church did right away. You know, the church had uh, took a few hundred years to figure out exactly what was going on and to figure out exactly what was the common belief. Dr. Lloyd, thank you. You have been a blessing to us for okay. these four weeks. How valuable your teaching has been. And I think we can certainly envision a time that we would invite you back. So keep current and figure <laughs> out figure out your next uh, your next four week series or maybe six week series. Who knows? Okay. But but we appreciate developing this friendship with you. Yes, I'd, and I'd thank you very in. much. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's